Hello and welcome. Uh, on behalf of CME Outfitters, thank you for joining us for today's CMEO briefcase titled Antiretroviral Treatment for People with HIV Who Are Pregnant. This program has been supported by an independent educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. I'm Dr. Rana Chakravorty. I'm a professor and consultant in the departments of pediatrics and adolescent medicine, immunology and obstetrics and gynecology at Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science in Rochester, Minnesota. I'll be the moderator for today's briefcase, and I'm happy to be joined by an esteemed colleague who will now introduce herself. Hi, I'm Judy Levison obstetrician, gynecologist, and professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Thanks, Dr. Levinson. So the goal of this educational activity is to empower learners to integrate guideline-recommended HIV treatment into perinatal care. And so uh, without much further ado, let's get into our first case. So patient Zona. She's a 32-year-old female who presents to her obstetrician as six-week gestation. Zana and her husband both have HIV infection and are virally suppressed with the use of antiretroviral therapy, or ART. The couple are delighted with the pregnancy after trying to conceive for over a year. They want to do everything possible to have a healthy pregnancy and prevent vertical transmission of HIV. Let's go through uh, some of the details as it pertains to HIV. She's on a combination of Bictegravir, which is a second generation integrase inhibitor, emtricitabine, and tenofovir alafenamide, fumarate. She takes one tablet once daily. In addition, she takes prenatal vitamin one tablet once daily, and antacids as and when necessary for a heartburn. Her viral load, her HIV RNA, is at the lower level of detection with a CD4 count of 513 cells and an SDI panel that has been negative. Her CBC and differential are all within the normal range and her renal and liver function are all within the normal limits. She was diagnosed with HIV infection about 10 years ago and has been virally suppressed for five years. She hasn't disclosed her status to her extended family. Otherwise, she has occasional acid reflux. She has no concern, no history or concern for tobacco or substance use. So the question first is, what is the risk of in utero or intrauterine HIV transmission when antiretroviral therapy is used to maintain an undetectable viral load throughout the pregnancy. Are the risks of transmission over 50%, approximately 30%, approximately 10%, less than 1%, or E? I don't know. The correct answer is D, less than 1%. And there have been a number of uh, important studies over the years 
uh, from investigators here in the United States, in the UK, and in other parts of Europe that have nicely highlighted uh, these statistics and generally arrived at the same conclusion. And this is really a nice segue uh, onto the next study where I'll be talking about particularly about the French perinatal cohort study. But generally, in a setting with free access to antiretroviral therapy, monthly peripheral viral load, infant prophylaxis, and in the absence of breastfeeding, successive antiretroviral therapy initiated before pregnancy and continued throughout pregnancy can reduce transmission of HIV to less than 1%. And so going on to that study, I'm going to invite Dr. Levinson to present some findings from uh, the French perinatal cohort study. Thanks so much. As you can see in this slide, the Sibuidi, our French perinatal cohort study, was able to show with 5,482 mother-baby pairs, no transmission in situations where the mother was virally suppressed at conception, remained virally suppressed throughout the pregnancy, and was virally suppressed at delivery. And this is really reassuring to all women who come in with undetectable viral loads. And so this assumes that these women knew their status before the pregnancy and were on antiretrovirals. What they also looked at was what if they were not virally suppressed at conception, but did have an undetectable viral load at delivery, and there it was a 0.57% transmission so still under 1%. And then if they were virally suppressed uh, at conception but not at delivery, it was about a 1% transmission rate. Thank you, Dr. Levinson. So if we go back to the case here with Zona, and we can clearly understand her apprehension and the concerns of risk of intrauterine transmission would I be correct in saying that the risk is very low um, if we extrapolate the data from the French prenatal cohort study to this particular case, if she had been in your practice? Absolutely. And if she maintained that viral suppression throughout her pregnancy and at delivery, we could reassure her and say, we have no worries about transmission to your baby. Well, that's... A nice segue also um, to the next slide uh, in terms of uh, monitoring and what exactly we need to do to protect mum as much as possible and also protect uh, the child from vertical transmission. Could you talk us through the, to through through this particular slide, Dr. Levins? Sure. And one of the questions that that's often asked is, well, how do I monitor someone while they're pregnant? And what is different than if I'm taking care of a non-pregnant patient? So we'll start with the uh, viral load. And certainly we want to know what the viral load is at the time that she enters into antenatal care. We are interested if we have the information about what, what her history has been. Has she been virally suppressed for a long time or has she had difficulty um, in maintaining viral suppression? 
Uh, once someone is virally suppressed, we recommend uh, viral loads at least every three months. In our practice, we probably do them about every two months. And then at about 36 weeks or when we approximately four weeks prior to uh, the anticipated delivery, we want to check a viral load one more time to make sure that, that it is under 1,000, that, that she is a candidate for a vaginal delivery. And sometimes we are surprised to find that someone who had been virally suppressed suddenly is not. And, and uh, we usually will get that at 36 weeks. And that still gives us a couple of weeks to work with someone if their viral load has gone up to find out what what has gone awry and to work with them to get it down before 38 weeks. CD4 count, uh, we also will get at entry into care. And we're interested also in what the history has been. What was the nadir uh, CD4 count? And um, because those who had very low CD4 count at some time in the past, we are a little more concerned about uh, if they missed their antiretrovirals. Um, What's recommended now is that if someone has been on ART for less than two years, uh, has a CD4 count of less than 300, inconsistent adherence, um, and or detectable viral load, then to repeat the CD4 count every three months. Um, otherwise, we uh, might repeat it one more time, like approximately at the, the six-month mark uh, during the pregnancy. Glucose screening. Uh, we do routinely at 24 to 28 weeks. We will do it earlier if somebody has risk factors such as a history of macrosomia or a history of gestational diabetes in the past or um, obesity. CBC and renal function we checked uh, early and then 20, around 24 to 28 weeks and liver function early on and then just as necessary. Great. That gives us a lot of information in terms of how to monitor. But I know historically um, with giving antiretroviral therapy to mums, there have also been concerns about what are the right drugs to use and if there are any uh, concerns about toxicities uh, to the unborn baby and also um, uh, to mum herself as well uh, during this process. Could you walk us through uh, your thoughts in terms of what the current guidelines tell us um, would work best for a pregnant mum with HIV infection? Of course. My first message to everyone is that if someone comes in on an antiretroviral regimen that they are satisfied with and that helps them maintain solid viral suppression, we recommend continuing that regimen with very few exceptions. And I think something that has confused the public uh, often is that in the national perinatal guidelines, we have listed preferred alternative and uh, drugs as well as those where there's insufficient data or not recommended. Um, those are for women who have never been on antiretrovirals before or who are ART naive. And what we sometimes see is someone was on a regimen they were really happy with and their doctor looks up prefer what's preferred and it's the drug they're on is not and changes them. And that puts people at risk for losing that nice solid viral suppression. So 
I'll go through, so we have the preferred ones, all of the um, NRTIs, as well as the, and the PIs and the integrase inhibitors. We are now, for a while, TAF, the tenofovir alafenamide, was, um, was, we didn't know that much about. That is now in the preferred category. Dolutegravir integrase inhibitor, uh, for a little while, was controversial because there was concern that perhaps there were, was a higher risk of neural tube defects, but that um, has been uh, disproved at once we um, had larger sample size. The darunavir with ritonavir, uh, one of the issues is that you have to take it twice a day, and that may be a challenge, and it may be a major challenge. Um, the alternatives, the zidovidine is a little bit outdated. The raltegravir, um, also you do have to take twice a day. The, um, P the PI, the protease inhibitors, and the non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors have, have really fallen um, to alternative because the integrase inhibitors are so good at uh, reducing viral load very rapidly and also are more durable and there's a lower chance of developing resistance with the integrase inhibitors. Where we right now are seeing um, in, insufficient data, um, the one that comes up the most often is bictegravir because probably more than half of our women come um, who are on antiretrovirals come in on bictegravir and we are gaining, through them, we're gaining a lot more experience. Um, honestly, one of the advantages of bictegravir, even in someone who's ART naive, is that it's a once-a-day pill and it's a small pill. So when I'm counseling women about starting antiretrovirals, I ask, do you have any difficulty taking pills? We have some models. We can even show them the different sizes of pills. When we Certainly when we get the answer that, yes, I do have difficulty taking pills for whatever reason, whether it's the size of the pill or I forget or whatever, uh, we often will turn to bictegravir, even in um, first line. And so I think that just to know that I think the guiding philosophy is we give what people will take, and to give somebody something twice a day that, that they're not going to take doesn't do anyone any good. So uh, my prediction is that the bictegravir will move to preferred within the next couple of years as we gain more experience with people on bictegravir. And then the um, others in the not recommended category are also, uh, we just really don't completely know, for example, with cabotegravir, um, we're going to start seeing women who come in on um, long-acting antiretrovirals, and we still don't know exactly how to deal with that. But again, if that's the only thing someone will accept, I wouldn't completely um, discard that, but I certainly would talk to an expert about uh, when you're getting into the categories of insufficient data and not recommended. Cobicystat is the one other that we know that anything combined with Cobicystat will reduce the therapeutic level in the bloodstream. And again, if someone comes in on, on something with Cobicystat, we will talk to our, our women and say, here are our choices. We could switch or we could watch you very carefully, do your viral loads more frequently. And if you have a, a blip that we would then switch you over. And we've had many women who preferred to stay on their original regimen, even though it had cobicystat. And as long as they remained virally suppressed, we, we supported them.
Wonderful. Thanks for going through that so comprehensively. Maybe just to take you back to Zana's case. Uh, she's on Big Tegravir, which, uh, where there's insufficient data, but clearly she's done fantastic for over a number of years with this one pill once a day regimen. Uh, she may, sounds like she may have conceived while taking this regimen. Would you, uh, recommend she continue, uh, with this combination that she's doing so well with? Or would you, Dr. Levinson, would you adjust uh, any medication at this point? I would continue it since she's doing so well on it and she's tolerating it well. Thank you. And that moves us on to sort of further monitoring in the next slide uh, for pregnant people in the situation where they're not where they're not doing as well, where they're unsuppressed, they're not taking the medications or their resistance for whatever reason. Uh, and really what your thoughts are in terms of monitoring uh, in such individuals. So here if we can again go first to the viral load. And for somebody who is not suppressed or is newly diagnosed, um, as we said in the beginning, we want a baseline viral load. And then we will check every two to four weeks after ART initiation or modification, and then monthly until the viral load is undetectable. Once it's undetectable, then checking every three months, as we discussed earlier. And, we, yeah, we do tend to check about every two months, um, especially in the second and third trimester. CD4 count we talked about initially, and then every three months during pregnancy and for somebody in, in this situation. Drug resistance at ART initiation modification. So you, before you start them on the new regimen, check for drug resistance. Uh, but we know that those results tend to come back after a few weeks. So we do not recommend waiting for results. You just go ahead and start what you want to start, and then um, can always modify once you get those resistance results. HLA-B5701, looking for abacavir sensitivity. Um, some people will do it if abacavir use is anticipated. We tend to do it just in our baseline uh, labs, and this way we have it um, for future uh, use if we need it. And then in terms of ARV-specific toxicity monitoring, um, you know, I think we used to check more um, renal and hepatic uh, testing more often, and now there really seem to be seems to be very little toxicity. So we, um, unless there's something very specific that we're advised to do, we don't routinely do any specific toxicity monitoring. And I really want to emphasize what uh, what you see at the bottom of the slide. Um, and what I always say is, if you re if you remember nothing else from this talk, um, I recommend you put it into your phone the number for the perinatal HIV AIDS hotline. The perinatal HIV AIDS hotline phone number is 888-448-8765. That's 888-448-8765. That is a 24-7 every day of the year hotline where you talk to a real human being and you can ask any question you have. There's no such thing as a stupid question when you call there. It can be three in the morning. 
you've just uh, had a newly diagnosed person with HIV in labor and delivery, whatever the situation, and um, it's a great place to get consultation and guidance for how to proceed because, as we know, each case is different. And um, even I, who work with the, the hotline as a consultant, I will sometimes call them when I know when I have a case that I know there's no single right answer, just because I want to bounce the ideas off somebody else. And they're just a really lovely group of people. Wonderful. Um, and uh, thanks very much, particularly about mentioning the perinatal HIV AIDS hotline with the number shown there. Well, let's take the pregnancy a little further down now and get to in the part from the uh, postpartum stages uh, and let's talk about sort of optimal management uh, during the intrapartum and uh, postpartum management. Dr. Leveson, if you want to talk about um, the intrapartum stage and I'll be happy to go through some of the recommendations uh, for postnatal care in the newborn. Great. So as we said, we're going to be following viral loads every two to three months. And then at 36 weeks, we want to uh, check one that just will help uh, inform us about best mode of delivery. And if somebody, as I said, if somebody at 36 weeks has a viral load um, that's over 1,000, we will work very intensely with them to see if we can get it down by 38. But um, generally, um, if somebody is near 38 weeks and the viral load is over 1,000, we recommend a scheduled cesarean. And the reason for the scheduled cesarean is to avoid labor. We're trying to preempt labor because once in labor, the risks of transmission start to go up. Um, in the case of someone with a viral load greater than 1,000 who's uh, going to have a cesarean, we recommend uh, intravenous zidovudine when they present in labor or at least three hours prior to a scheduled cesarean. And sometimes the situation comes up where, ooh, we don't have a full three hours because we're afraid she's going to deliver before then. And there, in that situation, we recommend at least giving a loading dose of the zidovudine, uh, which is two milligrams per kilogram, um, and then proceeding with cesarean. Um, if the full infusion is given, then after the initial uh, loading dose, it's one milligram per kilogram per hour. If the viral load is less than 1,000, um, then um, we do not recommend cesarean solely for the prevention of perinatal HIV transmission, and we would recommend only for obstetric um, indications. And we do think that you should consider zidovudine if the viral load is over 50. And I think some depends on the institution. Um, there are some institutions who just feel like, you know, we don't know our patients that well um, because they were cared for, for someone on the outside, and we just feel most comfortable giving everyone IV um, zidovudine. And I have no problem with that. And um, the, there's no risk to doing that if that is what everyone is most comfortable with. In our situation, we know our patients quite well, and we tend to tailor the, whether they need zidovudine or not to the individual. And uh, we recommend continuing ART throughout labor and after delivery, so their usual regimen, as well as arranging for supportive services prior to discharge. Go ahead, Dr. Chakraborty. And I guess with the baby um, now delivered, uh, it's really incumbent uh, for the neonatal team 
uh, or the pediatric team uh, to work uh, closely with each other, uh, particularly to get uh, antiretroviral therapy, which we have had uh, as liquid preparation for about three, four decades from the time of the first uh, PACTG076 study, uh, which was reported in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, way back in 1994. Nowadays, we recommend we get the uh, antiretrovirals uh, into baby uh, within six hours of delivery. That's not always easy, for, especially for premature newborns uh, and especially extreme prematurity where there's always that um, background and concern. Uh, for necrotizing enterocolitis uh, later along uh, in postnatal life. But that's obviously a decision that's taken between the neonatologist and the pediatric ID specialist. But what's also important is to to test for HIV infection. Now, for high-risk deliveries, a recommendation from the HHS, uh, Health and Human Services um, uh, Perinatal Guidelines, uh, is to test at birth uh, and then uh, go on to test at two to three weeks of life, one to two months, and then at four to six months of life. Uh, this is outlined uh, in the box on the right-hand side on the newborn. Uh, the, this particular box, though, uh, relates to a baby uh, where there's less risk because it, uh, it sounds like mum has maintained an undetectable viral load uh, up to the point of delivery. Uh, and in that case, uh, with that low risk delivery, uh, the recommendation uh, would be to give uh, oral liquids, zidovudine, uh, for two weeks. Uh, and this uh, follows on uh, from recommendations uh, that first started in Europe and uh, that we're working from, although historically uh, it used to be six weeks. However, if there's moderate risk, uh, that extension, that goes up to uh, four to six weeks, and that would be in addition to uh, two other drugs in under that high-risk category. And those two drugs can be nivirapine uh, or uh, raltegravir uh, in combination with lamivudine and zidovudine. Now, in the circumstance where your first DNA-PCR comes back actually positive, so in that group, of less than 1%, uh, the indication would be to uh, initiate three-drug uh, three drug antiretroviral regimen at treatment, uh, at treatment doses uh, to then treat uh, newborn uh, perinatal HIV infection. And so moving on to our case, we've talked about uh, Zona again. She's maintained an undetectable viral load. And so her baby will fall into that low risk category uh, because that undetectable viral load was present throughout pregnancy. Uh, she and the baby appear to be healthy and the and baby appears to be developing well. Uh, she reveals that her husband, our first generation uh, migrants into the United States, their families are originally from uh, Nigeria and West Africa. Uh, they're very excited and happy about having the baby especially the mother-in-law uh, who's planning to visit uh, from Nigeria uh, very shortly after the birth of the baby. There's one situation here that Zana wants to breastfeed. Uh, she feels breast is best. 
But there's also another critical reason. She doesn't want to reveal her HIV status to her mother-in-law, the fear of judgment and stigma. But she's also concerned that if she is giving formula feeding, this will raise a suspicion and potentially lead to conflict in the family in terms of why she's not breastfeeding and why instead that she's opting for formula feeding in the eyes of uh, relatives. Before I get to the next question for the audience, uh, for Dr. Levinson, is this a situation that you've encountered in your practice? Uh, and we'll certainly talk about what you've done, um, uh, what, what you do in this circumstance, but is this something you've seen? Uh, any comments on Zona's predicament? Yes, this is this is exactly the kind of patient who taught me how important breastfeeding is to many cultures. And there are many different reasons <clears throat> someone might opt to breastfeed, but the fear of disclosing HIV status is huge. And um, especially among many of the African countries, the stigma is great. I had one woman who told me if I don't breastfeed, basically it's the equivalent of waving a red flag at my community that I have HIV. And if they even suspect I have HIV, not only will I not no longer get invited to anyone's home, but my child will not be allowed to play with the children of any of the other members of the community, even if my child does not have HIV. And it really brought home to me that the issue of breastfeeding is greater than solely is there transmission, but there's just maybe huge social consequences. And that's what that's how I got involved in all of this was listening to my patients and realizing that if I said, no, you can't breastfeed, many were going to do it anyway. And I much rather had them breastfeeding um, and being open with us and trusting us to give them some guidance uh, to help reduce the risk of transmission. So, yes, this is a great example of um, someone who might want to breastfeed. And then what are your thoughts? For your colleagues in pediatrics who may sort of think mum with HIV infection who wishes to breastfeed, I have to get social services involved. Um, well, I think we're going to uh, get get to that in a few slides. But um, I think it's important to have the discussion with the pediatricians ahead of time. And what we do is... We discuss with the mother. We now ask every mother, how do you want to feed your infant? And if she has an interest in breastfeeding, we arrange a consultation with our pediatric HIV specialists. And she sits down with them. It used to be in person. Now it's made even easier on Zoom. And um, the pediatrician goes through pros and cons. Um, we have developed for our group, and but I don't feel like it has to. Be, you have to use this, but we have a an agreement. It's not a consent form. It's nothing legal, but um, just going over all the points that we can't guarantee that the that 
transmission will not occur, but the risk seems to be low in her situation. Uh, we we are offering the infant feeding to anyone who is virally suppressed. If they're not virally suppressed, we make it clear that we do not think that, that it's a good idea. And um, we really haven't had any pushback because women don't want their babies to have HIV. So I think talking with the pediatricians ahead of time really important. And um, we will often, if somebody's in labor, we'll alert the pediatricians, oh, this is the one that you consulted on. We now also have a pediatrician who is, uh, who oversees all our lactation consultants, who is, um, has started offering consultation too. So she will have a consultation too with, uh, with our women who want to breastfeed. Thank you for that. And so let's get to our next question. So with consistent maternal antiretroviral therapy adherence and an undetectable viral load, what is the risk of vertical HIV transmission to a breastfed baby? Is it A, over 50%, B, approximately 30%, C, approximately 10%, D, less than 1%, or E, I don't know? And so the answer is less than 1%, but it isn't zero. Nevertheless, uh, there has been uh, quite a lot of evidence uh, from a number of really key studies. And the one we're going to talk about is the one shown at the bottom of the slide, uh, called the PROMISE study, uh, which had a number of publications associated uh, with this particular trial. Uh, it was published in, in 2018 and uh, 2021. And really the conclusions uh, were that uh, maternal antiretroviral therapy uh, and then infant uh, prophylaxis uh, strategies uh, were safe and were associated with very low HIV-1 uh, uh, vertical transmission and high HIV-free survival at 24 months. And PROMISE was a study uh, that was uh, performed in a number of uh, countries. Uh, there were 14 sites in sub-Saharan Africa uh, and also uh, sites in India as well um, that were involved. And that's how some of this data has been generated, in addition to uh, a number of other very key studies taken place over the years in countries uh, like Botswana, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Kenya and South Africa uh, that have provided this data, which we're now extrapolating back to our own practices uh, here in the United States. And so uh, that's why this leads to uh, the next slide, uh, which is on infant feeding. Uh, and I'll quickly go over a couple of the key bullet points. And these are that uh, People with HIV should receive uh, evidence-based patient-centered counseling. And this sounds very similar to the infrastructure that Dr. Levinson uh, detailed in her own practice in, in, in Texas. But it's patient-centered counseling, listening to the patient to really sh support shared decision-making about infant feeding throughout pregnancy and again after delivery. But again and again, it requires listening to your patients. The infant feeding options that limit the risk of HIV transmission are formula and pasteurized donor human milk. 
of maintaining viral suppression through, through antiretroviral therapy during pregnancy and in the postpartum pe- period decreases breastfeeding transmission risk to less than 1%, although it's not zero. Therefore, an exclusive focus on the risk of perinatal HIV transmission via breastfeeding it may fail to acknowledge the health benefits to lactating parents and their infants that may be lost by the situation where um, breastfeeding is uh, prohibited. The other key bullet point is that people with uh, HIV infection on antiretroviral therapy uh, with a sustained uh, undetectable uh, viral load and who choose to breastfeed uh, should be supported in this decision and not judged. Uh, and therefore, it goes back to our discussion about engaging child protective services or similar agencies. It's not always appropriate. Actually, most of the time, it, wouldn't, it won't be a, an appropriate response uh, to the infant feeding choices of an individual with HIV. And so lots of discussion and uh, development of an infrastructure uh, that enables, uh, rather than working in silo, uh, working seamlessly between the neonatologist, the pediatrician, the obstetricians, and most importantly, uh, the mom. And a couple of other comments just related to what you brought up, the, the third sub-bullet about solely focusing on HIV transmission ignores some of the benefits that may be gotten both by the baby and and the mother. And we know that um, breastfed infants have fewer infections, including ear infections, less asthma, um, less obesity, less diabetes. And similarly, mothers who breastfeed um, uh, have less hypertension, um, less type 2 diabetes, and lower uh, risks of certain cancers, specifically breast and ovarian. And we realize that a large number of our population with HIV are women of color, and those are people who are already at risk for many of these morbidities. And so to deny them breastfeeding, it may also be exacerbating some of the health dis- disparities. So um, we had a lot of community input um, as we developed the newer guidelines, and uh, that really came to the fore. Um, and the other about engaging child protective services, I hadn't realized how important that has been to many clinicians around the country. Um, to and certainly, if you feel that some uh, that child protective services needs to be called for some other reason, absolutely. But solely for the reason of, of uh, choice of how they are feeding their infants, no. And um, realize that babies have been taken away from their mothers um, sometimes for months. Um, and how just how disruptive that could be to a family, and that is not appropriate. One other question that comes up is, what about occasional formula feeding? And in the past, we had some concerns about mix what we call mixed feeding, which we took to to mean alternating breast milk and uh, formula, uh, because there were some studies prior to antiretroviral therapy, and I say that in bold and underlined, prior to antiretroviral therapy, where the transmission was higher when mothers went back and forth between 
um, breast milk, and it turned out it wasn't just formula. They were also giving, some were giving solids, and that's just not appropriate for any child under four months. And so that, um, I think, compl has complicated just our interpretation of or, or, or how we have moved forward on this. And our feeling now is that those studies were prior to antiretroviral therapy, number one. And in the current universe with women who are breastfeeding on antiretrovirals, the, those studies probably are not relevant. But many of us still have that sort of nagging at us, oh, if we give occasional formula, is that going to increase the risk? And there's just the uh, reason or theory behind that is that um, if you give something that's not breast milk, it may irritate the baby's gut. And where there's inflammation, there's HIV. And so it opens up portals of um, entry for HIV through breast milk. But um, again, those old studies we now realize uh, often included giving solids. And that's not what we're talking about here. And there's so many situations where mother's milk supply has not yet come in. And there's something that's going on um, where they're breastfeeding and then there's there's a need for formula. And we right now are without solid evidence, but basically we're saying we don't think that those old studies really help us in this situation where um, we're saying if you need to intermittently use formula, go ahead, but return to breastfeeding as soon as possible. And I strongly agree. I, I remember the paper you're talking about published in South Africa, and it was in an era when combination antiretroviral therapy just wasn't given, and mums delivered with uh, detectable viral load. And yes, there were circumstances where babies were given um, solid foods far too early. Uh, and so extrapolating that to the current uh, uh, situation uh, nearly 30 years later was, wouldn't, always be, uh, wouldn't always be best. Um, but I, I also think what you just said um, is leads nicely to, I think, a paper where you, you were first author um, published in Clinical Infectious Diseases, uh, where the conclusions really were uh, that you looked at the cohort in here in the U.S. of uh, people with HIV who breastfeed in North America, and you've written about the high variability among institutions in terms of policies, infant prophylaxis, and infant and parental testing practices, and the challenges in weighing the potential risks of transmission with personal and community factors, uh, and the relatively small numbers of patients are living with HIV who shoot to breastfeed, um, and the need for further multi-site studies, um, ultimately in the US and North America, to identify best care practices. Uh, which I think is published or is about to be published. Yeah, it now has been. Okay. Um, and finally, uh, the goals uh, or the summary uh, we highlighted as SMART goals, uh, which are specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, uh, and timely to use the updated uh, HHS perinatal HIV guidelines uh, to implement uh, recommendations for optimal management, uh, in pregnant persons with HIV to prevent very vertical transmission uh, through these three key periods, the antenatal, intrapartum, and postpartum periods, to provide all pregnant persons with HIV with ongoing patient education on the importance of achieving and maintaining suppressed viral load uh, throughout through antiretroviral therapy throughout and following pregnancy, and then to initiate shared decision-making 
discussion on interfeeding options uh, with pregnant mums uh, to help create an informed uh, and supportive environment uh, and uh, supported uh, infant feeding plan. Uh, the key words for me there are shared uh, and informed, uh, involving lots of communication. So um, I'd like to uh, thank Dr. Levinson for her real wonderful and very wise insights uh, today. So I'd like to thank everyone for this and thank you again, Dr. Levinson.